Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. The Wonky Show podcast is on its Christmas break. So as a special treat, we've rolled up season two of the Hidden History of HE into two special seasonal box sets. Every week, Nottingham Trent's academic registrar Mike Ratcliffe delves deep into the sector's past to find out how things were and how things came to be. And this week in part one, Mike looks back at attempts to ban the Oxbridge tradition of awarding MAs, uh, the time when the government closed HE colleges that they just opened, the end of the binary divide between universities and polytechnics, the battle to build new universities, including the towns that lost, and the vision that we used to have for student accommodation. One of the things that Nick Hillman has um, talked about is how we have a boarding school tradition in English higher education. So what is it that has made England, uh, and it's England rather than Scotland, uh, adopt this particular residential model? Now, obviously, this is deep in our history, um, but and, and most of it is just an accident. But it becomes an accident that becomes enshrined in policy. Oxford and Cambridge start off on their course to becoming the great universities that they are um, by wanting to be quite a long way away from the king and his courts and the bishop and their authority. So they're quite happy being in small towns, uh, relatively well connected, but not so connected so that the person in charge of them could be, be there all the time. So that's a benefit to both those two universities and a benefit that they're not in a major city. Now, England only has one major city, but neither of those two universities are in London. Um, and it's quite clear that, that that's that's fine. So they set off in that model. And therefore, it's quite clear that if they are national universities, and as we've discussed before, they're quite good at killing off other people's attempts to have universities, um, then everyone has to travel to those universities. And they set up a term system so that you're only there for eight weeks, and then you can go home again. And uh, whether or not we believe that people really went home in the summer to do the harvest. But the the, the time you were there, you were in residence, um, either uh, in one of the colleges or in a hall, and therefore you you had a, a kind of wraparound experience in terms of somebody looking after you the whole time, and that was part of the education that was on offer. So we ended up with this situation, though that's, that's a good thing, and that provides quite a strong uh, basis for uh, continuing education. Now, the commuter universities that come in the uh, 19th century push against that, places like UCL and later uh, Manchester and Leeds and Liverpool, uh, they might have small numbers of halls of residence, but they generally, uh, most of their students are commuting, most of their students are coming in every day. But by the time we get after the um, First World War, there are two new bodies with a view on how higher education should be best organised. The new University Grants Committee um, is con- um, constructed of, of uh, the great and the good who come together and, and think deep thoughts about higher education should best be organised. They think residence is, is the best way of organising a higher education institution. And the other new body that has a view on these things is the National Union of Students. And it's the National Union of Students who also makes quite a lot of the running on residential life is best. And there are lots of reports written and, and snarky books about how the life of the commuting student is, is nothing like the life of the residential student. The residential student can go to debates and have 
dinners and, and live that kind of much broader, richer life. Uh, and lots of reports saying how sad it is um, that uh, commuting students don't get to do that. And this is put into play in, in UGC action. The only university that UGC allowed to become a university between the wars is Reading. Reading has a very firm commitment to residence. Uh, it's much more unlike any of the other university colleges. It's very committed. Uh, it's, it's sponsored by Oxford. It's very committed to having a residential experience. And so it's the only one that gets through. So we get to the 50s. Uh, we're dealing with expansion of higher education. And there's a clear attempt to say the residential model is much better. Keel has started off on a residential model. But there's a, a, a grand committee uh, chaired by Niblet uh, that comes together and says, look, this is this is where we should be going. We want to avoid the nine to five mentality, which is the great enemy of university education. Um, and therefore, the UGC committed to provide capital funds to build residences. So this is great because, of course, um, one of the things it tried to do was set out clear specifications. You couldn't build grander halls of residence uh, than the UGC would give you money for. You had to build them. So if you um, spend your time uh, trolling around the country going to 1950s and 60s halls of residence, you will find the square meterage is pretty much the same everywhere you go. The same little basin in the corner of the room, uh, the same wardrobe, uh, the same vanishingly small bed on which to sleep. You can't build bigger than the UGC will give you money for, even if you've actually got the cash to do it. So there's a, a, a grand specification. And this comes from a very egalitarian sense. Everyone gets the same kind of accommodation. And those universities that um, have got different kinds of accommodation have to deal with this. One of the reasons that some of those universities got great accommodation is that uh, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, one of the ways that Oxford and Cambridge tried to attract better off students was by building small palaces for them to live in. So if you go around and you look at some of the great buildings that you know, we all buy postcards of, it's because they built buildings to look like the palaces uh, and great country houses that they, these uh, uh, sons of the gentry had come out of. And so they built them to make you know, very familiar, you know, the same kind of panelling, same kind of high rooms, the same kind of you know, um, classical architecture. But there's a sense that we should have this kind of utilitarian uh, view as we go forward. So we then obviously have uh, the UGC funding these kinds of things. Uh, eventually, when the sector comes together, the polytechnics have a great rush to try and deal with building um, uh, residences, um, as many of which now have to come off uh, the balance sheet because Hefke decides we're not building residences. Mostly, I assume, because um, there's no way they could have afforded to pay for the polytechnics to have all of this stuff and to balance out the sector, and therefore they all come off balance sheet. Now, that's probably a progenitor of another problem, uh, as now we have all these accommodation blocks off residence, we, you know, financing has become problematic. The other thing that's, of course, allowed to happen now is that people are now back in the business, just as they were in the 18th century, of building luxury accommodation blocks. So now we have a wonderful tradition, uh, restarting uh, again, that just as... Um, uh, Dean Aldridge built grand blocks for people uh, to come to Oxford. Now they're building grand blocks for people to go to, to London and, and live in swanky things with cinemas and gyms and swimming pools and concierge services and all the rest of these kind of things. So we're, we're kind of back where we were before. So um, Howard Silver wrote about this uh, before um, this kind of span off where people were still using PFI rather than just completely outsourcing it. And he was concerned that we're abandoning a tradition of residences, that we no longer see them in an educational context only as essential for competitive recruitment. And he wrote that in 2007. And I think 
that's kind of where we are now. So the concern about we've ended up with this residential model, um, but we probably let slip the controls that we once had over it. Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities uh, and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less so in the market type system but when we had planning bodies how should we do that now the biggest set of expansion came straight after the second world war where um, they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back um, either they'd already gone off to war they'd been off into a variety of different occupations and they were going to want to have higher education the americans handled this through their uh, gi bill um, but we set about just expanding our universities and the interesting bit is that we started planning for this in act you know active way in 1943 so before we've even invaded Normandy, the British university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back. So excellent planning from the UGC. Um, and off it goes. It works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s. Um, again, if we think we have trouble now, try running a university through the Great Depression when most of the students have to pay their fees. So they've not expanded as much as they thought, so they were ready for them all to expand. The only difference is that um, the chair of the UGC, Walter Mobley, is persuaded uh, to let the University College of North Staffordshire start. And so A.D. Lindsay uh, persuades him that it would be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university. And Mobley is very concerned about um, how the war has gone, how it's impacted on universities, and he thinks we need new types of students. Uh, and so they're allowed to run a four-year course, predominantly residential um, uh, an opportunity to have a foundation course at the minute so it's time to do something different and they get going and everyone else starts to expand and then we go through the 50s just slowly upgrading universities so the university colleges become universities they all expand there's a bit of a backlash if you think about um, Kingsley Amis and Lucky Jim and his more means worse thing um, but generally this is the idea that we can continue by the end of the decade it's clear we need more universities they exceed to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton but then um, having got to that stage they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities and then starts this marvellous thing this bidding competition to have universities so the bidding competition to have new universities is an excellent and really exciting example of how British university planning worked they set up a subcommittee. Great and the good come on the subcommittee. They happily uh, sit together and work out what they should do. Now, people have been writing in saying, hello, can I have a university for a while now? So they've got a file already of towns and cities that said, can we have a university, please? So they're ready to go. So they've got a, a group of people they can contact and say, are you still interested in having a university? And they work out what the criteria are for having a good university. It needs plenty of land in order to expand. It needs to have good access to schools so that staff uh, will come and let their kids um, go to those schools. Um, it needs to have a certain amount of industry nearby and communications to other universities, but there's no kind of fixed uh, idea of what they should do. They also don't have a fixed idea of where they should be, so they just let the applications come in and then sort them out so um, different local authorities spring up with ideas and write in sending in their different um, uh, bits some from rather unlikely places so 
for quite a long time, the one making the running in the northwest was Blackpool. We're going to have the University of Blackpool. Um, that attracted quite a lot of uh, comment because Blackpool was a slightly challenging place, um, and so people. Uh, you know, had different views on this uh, and the best bit of that is someone who cheerfully wrote into the UGC saying um, I think um, he says I beg to strongly oppose the current suggestion that a university for the northwest of England should be established at or on the outskirts of Blackpool a university is supposed to be a place where young people absorb culture and learning not spivery and paganism he goes on to say that he can't imagine a worse place to put a university apart from Soho uh, now it turns out that uh, Lancashire um, starts to move more in the direction of uh, uh, Lancaster itself. Um, they acquire some land at Bellrig and Lancaster gets a nod over Blackpool. But we go through these independent writing in exercises. So there's a, um, a businessman who's driving past Stamford in Lincolnshire uh, uh, and he hears that um, the, the People of Stanford might be quite interested in having a university. They're one of the places that had a, a university suppressed in the Middle Ages. And he gets really involved in this. Uh, and he effectively becomes the leading light of this constant bid to have a university for Stanford. And they get quite a long way down the, the thinking. One of the key reasons is that Stanford's uh, got a new bypass, so it's got plenty of land, uh, it's been redeveloped, and you can think about having a university. And there's a whole published report on why it would be a good thing for the University of Stanford to get going. Uh, and these keep going through. So there's a, a bid for university. Uh, University at Glastonbury. Uh, this nice chap writes in and says it'd be great to build a new university city of Avalon next to Glastonbury um, and create a new university city. Uh, now he doesn't get anyone else supporting him, but there on the UGC file is his nice letter and the very polite letter back from the uh, the civil servants of the UGC saying, "Well, that's that's very interesting. Do do follow up with some more details." So you go through these kind of stages, and and there is a long list of places that at some point are considered to have a new university. Some of whom that's fine they get they go and get their university so we have uh bids from bournemouth and carlisle and chatham and chester and uh there's one from coventry which is obviously quite successful but plymouth and salisbury and stanford and stevenage and thanet thanet is one of the ones that makes one of the early running again uh but in the end is is passed over in terms of of canterbury so you get this kind of wonderful pickup of these things and the files are just great as you go through them uh, and you get this different information sent in by these people trying to say well can we have a university place? So the best correspondence I found on the file is from the Swindon people. So the Swindon people start by this very apologetic letter from the town clerk saying, um, people in Swindon have asked me to write. I'm not sure personally about doing this, um, but, but what's the process? Um, and then he kind of gets more into it, and the Swindon say, well, one of the things we want to do is, is deal with the fact that there's a perception that we're quite a dreary town, and a university might be quite good for us. So they, they kind of talk about how this might go through. And his correspondence backwards and forwards uh, goes on and on over about four years, because because they don't quite get going in time. Uh, and slowly, you know, it's clear that other people are getting their universities um, but, but they're not. So by the end, when it's quite clear that there aren't going to be any more universities, this is this is sad little letter in from the town clerk uh, to the UGC. Um, Please do not groan too deeply when you receive this letter. I'm not going to harass you. I know that nothing can be done until the government announcement has been made about new universities. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, we've, we, perhaps we could use a new bit of land. It might be a better bit for, for our new Swindon University. Uh, and he ends it in a sad little sign-off. Now, please don't toss this into the waste paper basket. Now, the good news is that it was all dutifully considered by the UGC. It's still lovingly kept on the file. Uh, Swindon did not get to have its university. Uh, the cut-off had come and the government had changed its mind on how many universities it wanted. Because 
because at that point um, the uh, new Labour government decides that's it, no more universities uh, we're going to stop uh, approving them we've got enough students uh, into the planning period uh, and we'll have no more so Tony Crosland uh, decides that there aren't going to be any more universities, but he decides that the expansion that uh, he needs in higher education is going to come through a new type of institution. So Crosland makes his famous Woolwich speech. He talks about how we should have a public sector of higher education um, and div- starts to set about the process of thinking about how that might be. And that leads to a white paper on polytechnics, the idea that we should start to have a different type of institution owned by the local authorities, responsive to local needs, um, and Crossland says that we should have uh, these universities shouldn't be caught up on um, the uh, snobbish um, sense that they all had to be universities. He wants to stop them from from going on and becoming universities. He wants to stay where they are, and that's underpinned by a, a theory that uh, one of his advisors, Till Burgess, has of academic drift. That what happens is that uh, a local college gets above its station effectively and develops more and more uh, um, higher education, becomes a university, and then ignores its locale afterwards. So he wants to fix the polytechnics in their place. So there's a, uh, another one of those great exercises where local authorities get to bid to have uh, their institutions turn into the bid. The idea in this case is not a completely new institution, uh, but to see whether or not your technical college has got enough uh, critical mass of full-time students that it might become a polytechnic. Uh, and so there are various different bids, and that involves all the local authorities thinking how they can amalgamate their higher education into, into a sufficient mass. Now that means, particularly for the polytechnics, that they have to be in existing la- uh, large areas, because there isn't enough critical mass out in the countryside where they put some of the new universities so the polytechnics are all uh, start off being based in in larger city centres which often means that the poly turns up in a city that has already got a university because by the time it's got there it's had an old university so the poly comes along so in terms of spatial policy it's useless because well the polys just end up in the same cities as the universities but um, they they get going and they pull those things together now some places don't get to have their poly so Hull um, really looked like it was going to be a leading contender to have um, it's polytechnic, but it didn't come off. You know, there was you know, arguments, uh, and in the end, the, 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 they didn't get a, a polytechnic in Hull. And other people were kept waiting. Um, there were discussions about which bits would get merged together. But the idea was to create uh, this public sector. Now, the other clever thing they managed to do is they used the kind of scheme that they'd done with the Colleges of Advanced Technology and have a body to approve their awards. And this is the CNAA, the Council for National Academic Awards. And this innovation allows government off the hook of giving degree awarding powers out to all these different institutions and allowing them to say, well, look, we're just going to have this one body that would prove them. And the, the masterstroke for the CNAA is that they don't go for the London model of setting the exams and making the students do it. They allow the courses to develop with the institutions. The institution can bring much more of its local flavour. There's a coordinating sense so that you know, a degree in business is broadly similar um, across the, the UK, but actually you start to get quite a lot of local variations. And that include some of the really innovative things the negotiated pathways leading to degrees and independent studies and you you get quite a lot of of distinctiveness that comes out and it develops quite a good corpus in terms of you know understanding how our courses work develops quite a lot of um, good practice and the the concepts that really underpin the CNAA tradition underpin quite a lot of what then becomes part of HEQC and QAA the idea that it would be quite a good idea to think about a course before you started it quite a good idea to be have quite a lot of transparency about the information uh, in time it becomes a vehicle for considering that modules might be a good way of organising them but none of that set down at the start but, but you start to get much more of a kind of development of a homogeneity of how you might organise courses which puts the UK on a pretty good setting so the polytechnics head off in that direction they 
survive the change of government in 1972. Now, there's a good chance that when uh, the Conservatives took over, they could have killed off two things. They could have killed off the Open University, and they could have killed off the Polytechnics. But Margaret Thatcher likes the Polytechnics. The Polytechnics are um, kind of business-orientated. They're trying to develop skills. They're quite up for... um, offering um, uh, expansion uh, and not complaining about it too much. And there's a great, um, again, on the file of the National Archives, an example where um, leaders of higher education were invited along to meet the Prime Minister. They were invited to dinner at number 10. Uh, and there's a great briefing note that explains to Ted Heath exactly what status these, these people are. So there's these lovely little vignettes against each of the vice-chancellors saying which ones are clever and which ones are, uh, which ones are, uh, know what they're doing, which ones look a bit bumbling but actually quite bright underneath it. So there's, th- there's that kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that you probably get given now uh, when you go to these kind of things. But there's a general summation of the two camps. Vice-chancellors are concerned about the role and standing of universities. They suspect that the government underprice them and do not consider them relevant enough. Whereas, on the other side of the binary line, the polytechnics are generally in good heart. They have their preoccupations. Chief amongst them is the need for greater clarification of their role, particularly in relationship to the local authorities, and the massive expansion, trebling, of student numbers following the white papers. So the polytechnics have gone in to see Ted Heath, saying, yep, we will treble our numbers, we will go for expansion, uh, and they will pull that off. So that kind of sense of the Conservatives can look to polytechnics to be the kind of organisation uh, to come on and develop them is, is something that underpins Margaret Thatcher's time as Secretary of State for Education right at the beginning of the 70s. The end of the binary line, the, the d- divide between the, uh, the autonomous sector of universities and the public sector of uh, higher education institutions, comes in two chunks. Um, one at the end of the 80s and one at the beginning of the 90s. The first part is that um, Margaret Thatcher is persuaded that the polytechnic should be incorporated, i.e. they should be taken out of the local authority control. So one of the complaints all the way from the start of the process from polytechnic directors is that they are trapped in a layer of bureaucracy uh, driven by the local authorities. Um, to start with, there are discussions about how, how much money a polytechnic could spend on its own. Is it £100 or is it £200 without having to go and get the local authorities' control? So they're seen as a department of the local authority. Um, and that heritage continues. So the local government pension scheme that um, is uh, provided to uh, staff in uh, uh, post-92 institutions is, is part of that heritage. But at the point, you would find that you know, the payroll was run through them, the committee structure was run through them, they weren't allowed to own their own buildings, everything had to be signed off by the, the local authority. So Mrs. Thatcher is convinced, and she's convinced, again, because the polytechnics are business-focused, they're keen to expand, they're keen to do what the government wants to do. But they also had the extra argument about the loony left because if there was something that we all know about the the, the way that uh, the Conservative government in the 80s was having to deal with things, they were so um, against the the loony left running um, large uh, conurbations and therefore all the polytechnic directors had to say is we could be so much better if we weren't enthralled to all these people and their their um, anti-nuclear campaigning and all of these kind of things. Just free us from this and we will do all of these kind of things. Whether they believe this or not, it was a really good uh, reason to get Margaret Thatcher behind them. So that's fine. And they were incorporated, they were allowed to, to run free. There's all sorts of weird things that happen apart of that because obviously um, some of the polytechnics get 
dealt quite a good hand. Um, they get to have the, um, the countryside training centre that used to belong to the um, local authority, or they get dealt uh, the hand of you know the local authority giving them all the really crappy stuff um, that's going to need you know huge amounts of maintenance and, and upgrade. But but th- those kind of things come to sort of and the the polytechnics get to be incorporated and the colleges as well alongside them. There's a, there's a discussion about how big you have to be and how much money, uh, and there's a kind of line drawn through the the sector as to who gets to be incorporated, and then have its own funding body. So they get looked after by the Polytechnics and Colleges Funding Council, um, and that continues off for a couple of years. But then the next chunk comes after Mrs Thatcher's left and John Major's come in, uh, and the discussion point comes about the next natural stage, which is, should we have one sector of higher education working together? I think that's probably coloured by the UFC finding it quite hard to make universities do what they're supposed to do, which was to expand cheaply. The Polytechnics are quite keen to do that, and the idea of bringing the whole sector together uh, is clearly quite good. There are big concerns in government about academic drift, that sense that Polytechnics are going to stop doing what they're good at, and there are documents which read just like the concerns that you'll read in the, in the Telegraph today about Polytechnics running two academic courses, doing research that they shouldn't be doing, uh, and generally drifting from their original mission. So there's a concern that they're going to do that. Uh, John Major is assured by Ken Clark that though that firm will have lots of mechanisms in place uh, to do that, um, but off they go and they take the decision that we will have one sector and we'll merge them all together. So Polytechnics get the opportunity to become universities. We get Hefke, which then starts its 25-year uh, run, um, and then we get one sector glued together. Obviously, there's a lots of discussions when that first comes together. There's a great file, uh, again, about discussing how the funding model will work and how people will migrate to a single uh, cost. Um, but the, the sector sets off in, in a relatively straightforward way. But yeah, that, that initial thing of, will there be parity of steam between vocational and academic forms of education? Uh, that's a concern that Michael Howard expresses uh, in the paperwork. Um, is a, is a key tension that I think we're still dealing with today and one that probably the Conservative Party still fights about. So off off we go. Um, this new move towards the class of society, the idea that academic and vocational education would work together, and obviously what we've seen is, is that development. Now there's an argument, and I think um, it's Simon Jenkins that makes it, is that the polytechnics win. Effectively, it's the polytechnic model much more than the, the autonomous model of the universities that win out from that. Uh, but that's the, that's the sector we get bequeathed in 1992. So if you look at the Robbins report, which stands as a, as a marker of where we were in, in early 1960s um, higher education in the UK, you'll find that there's a whole chapter dedicated for the Colleges of Education and Training of Teachers. Because when Robbins wrote, there were 146 colleges in the UK delivering teacher training, and they had 49,000 students, which is about a quarter of the whole of the higher education sector. And at that point, they were still dealing with the repercussions of some very serious manpower planning that the government had done and and planning for a huge expansion. There was talk about the number of trainee teachers needing to go up to 114,000 across the sector. So Robin spends a lot of time thinking about what is going to happen to all these colleges of higher education. There's a concern that many of them are too small, haven't got a critical mass in terms of what they're trying to do. So there's a discussion about whether they should become liberal arts colleges, whether they could develop in that direction. Robin suggests that they uh, move towards having a Bachelor of Education degree rather than the cert ed uh, that they have been offering. Uh, and the government swings into action with all its normal planning and um, foresight that, that puts everything together. If you look at the buildings built by these uh, county architects at this point, they look just like the new universities that are being put up. So you can put um, the Walsall 
campus of the West Midlands College of Education next to Lancaster or Warwick and for the you know the shiny black and white photos you wouldn't be able to tell them apart they are doing the same kind of thing they're developing a residential experience for students but focused on teacher education but by the beginning of the 1970s all of this has changed the James Committee looks at the future of higher education in, in teacher training uh, and they suggest that what would be good is to have a, a dip HE route because you probably only need two years of, of general education before you go off and do teacher edu- uh, teacher training uh, and that would also be a good way for the colleges to diversify it's a way that they don't have to have the research expertise that you'd expect in the final year so the dip HE is born as an idea the idea that you could have a, a short stage um, higher education qualification that you could then top up with professional training so it's the beginning of our first um, short cycle uh, award uh, but also notes that the planning forecasts for teacher training have changed quite radically because people have counted how many children are coming forward and that the teachers aren't retiring and therefore there's a major shift in terms of the numbers that they think about so they shift this idea that they will have about 100,000 down to about 60,000 so this is a tremendous change in terms of uh, manpower planning probably an argument for saying that government should never do manpower planning uh, again so uh, the white paper that Mrs Thatcher uh, puts out, uh, a framework for expansion in terms of uh, education, uh, has to deal with the fact that there are now 160 of these colleges, uh, but they are comparatively small and inconveniently located for development into larger general purpose, institution, purpose institutions. Um, some of them will be needed just for teacher education. Some might develop in other directions. Uh, and cheerfully, uh, this being a white paper, some must face the possibility that in due course they will have to be converted to new purpose some may need to close and then sets about this extraordinary planned exercise uh, of which you can find loads of books complaining about because it's just done awfully of deciding which of the colleges are going to close and they work their way methodically through it they have to deal with the churches who are quite important in this area so there's discussions with the Catholic Board of Education and the Church of England who have a sense of which ones they want to keep going there's um, some thinking about where things are located because when they they were trying to fill in every available area and make sure they had a teacher training college suddenly that doesn't make sense uh, so there's some, some interesting uh, shifts in terms of that there's local considerations which college is going to survive which is going to merge with the Polytechnic so here locally uh, there are three um, colleges of, of education Clifton College Mary Ward and Newark they all are in the running to join um, uh Trent Poly, but only Clifton College does. The others close outright. And in Mary Ward's case, uh, this is a, a Catholic college that's been put out in the, in the countryside um, near Nottingham. Um, it had only opened in 1969. And within three years, they were discussing having to close it. Now, they sold the site to the British Geological Survey, so that's fine. It's, it's site got used. But these kind of conversations go on. And brand new colleges are just closed down again. So it's just one of those monumental uh, failures. Now, some of the colleges that survive, uh, either through merger or just on their own, are the foundations of a, a wave of universities that we get um, in this century. So Chester's and Winchester's and Chichester's, the kind of cathedral town um, colleges of education. But the, some of the places that lose their um, colleges of education have never really got it back in terms of the development. So places like Grantham or Salisbury, they lose their college of education. They never get it back again. They, they're, they're left with a, a college of technology and a fee college. They, they don't get a higher education presence back again in the same kind of a way. And it's a bit of a lottery how all that works out. But the prospect that the government grows a sector and then five years later contracts it desperately is just one of those sad little stories of, of how we've ended up in our current situation. 